This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on root cause healing, and oftentimes that's using a meat based elimination diet for gut healing. While you're here, please make sure to like and hit the subscribe button. Okay, so today I am very excited. I have been waiting for this interview for a while as I've been kind of alluding to the discussions about uric acid and fructose and purines. And today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Richard Johnson. Dr. Johnson is already a author that wrote The Fat Switch and The Sugar Switch. And now he is coming out with a new book in February called Why Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. He talks a lot about uric acid and the dangers of excess fructose and purines and alcohol. You don't want to miss this two part conversation. Dr. Richard Johnson is a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, and he's also a nephrologist, a specialist in infectious disease.、Uh, he's also a clinician, educator, and researcher, and he's also the founding editor of Comprehensive Clinical Nephrology. He's been doing research for over 20 years in terms of obesity and diabetes, and then what even affects blood pressure. What I want you to really take away from this conversation is that if you eat, Purines, which are heavy in meats and fish, and especially in liver and organ meats, because they have the highest concentration of purines. But also, if you then add alcohol to the mix and fructose, and fructose can be high fructose corn syrup, but it can all be all the other things that we talk about in the interview, including fruits and especially honey, which is higher in fructose. You want to consider if you're not feeling well that maybe you should be checking. Uric acid levels and other things that we talk about again in this interview. Sometimes eating meat based and then just adding fruit is not a safe thing, especially if you have imbalances in your kidneys, especially if you have any previous insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, and then also if you have imbalances with your liver. 
I know I've talked a lot about the concerns of hypervitaminosis A with eating beef liver and chicken liver, but now there's another role in this whole thing about eating too much organ meats. The other thing is the excess in purines when we're eating also fructose or fruit on a meat-based diet. Let's get into the interview so you can hear the nuances and why sometimes when we say, if it, if the body looks well and the person feels well, then maybe that is not doing harm to the body. Well, in this conversation, we discuss how sometimes disease is imminent, even if you don't feel it right away. One thing I want to mention before we get into the conversation is that for some reason, my mic went haywire during our conversation, of course. So the first half of it, we try to fix it. We try to do some audio magic, but it's just the best that it can be. So I'm sorry if my part of the questions sound a little hard to hear, but thankfully, Dr. Richard Johnson's mic is pretty good. And then the latter half or the second part of this interview, um, my mic starts to act normal again. So I wanted to apologize for people that are listening to this on possible ear pods. I apologize in advance. Hi, Dr. Richard Johnson. I am so excited. I've been anticipating this interview forever. I've been hyping it up to my community. So I know everyone will be impressed and excited about all the research you've done on blood pressure, kidneys, uh, fructose, and the uric acid cycle. So for the people that don't know you that are listening and watching, can you talk a little bit about your background and why you got into uric acid and um, everything else about you? Yeah, thank you, Judy. It's so I'm so happy to be on your program. So I started off wanting to be an archaeologist, believe it or not. Yeah, but my father was in academic medicine, and he always encouraged me to go into medicine. And I found that I liked biology, I liked medicine as well. And so I ended up becoming a doctor, uh, and I decided that I wanted to do research because I was very curious about why things occurred more so than how to treat. So I was, was very curious, why does diabetes occur? Why does, oh, you know, what drives obesity? These were questions I was interested in from the very beginning. And so when I started my research, um, I originally trained as an internist and also as an infectious disease and nephrologist um, expert. And so I, I kind of kind of did too much, I guess. But at any rate, um, I started doing research and I was very interested in, in kidney disease and its relationship with blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And um, it's known that the kidney has an important role in regulating salt uh, excretion. And that, and there were some studies that suggested that high blood pressure was due to an impairment in salt excretion. And as I was studying this, I, I began to realize that, that a subtle injury to the kidney could be a cause of high blood pressure. And I began to realize that that was a very common issue in people with high blood pressure, that they have subtle injury to the kidney and so uh, I began to think that maybe this could be the clue to what causes high blood pressure. And then as I started that, uh, studying that, then I began to look, I started looking for what could drive uh, the inflammation and injury to the kidney. And I realized it was a very big link, linkage with uric acid. Mm -hmm. And people with high uric acid were at really at increased risk for developing high blood pressure. And then we started doing experiments by raising uric acid in animals. And suddenly we found that those animals developed mild inflammation in their kidneys and high blood pressure just by raising uric acid. Wow. And then, uh, I, oh my God, this could be a clue to what causes high blood pressure. And then the question, of course, was, well, what drives up the uric acid? Right. And one of, the, one of the things that can do it is sugar. And sugar intake had been increasing during the last century in parallel with an increase in uric acid. And in parallel with a rise in blood pressure, 
And I thought, well, maybe that's it. And so we started giving sugar to animals and they developed high blood pressure. And if we lowered uric acid, we could lower their blood pressure. But the incredible thing was when we gave sugar to animals, they also became fat and they became insulin resistant and they became all these features that we call metabolic syndrome. And when we lowered the uric acid, we improved all of those. And they go, oh my gosh, could uric acid be important in the way sugar causes obesity? And then that led to many, many experiments to try to figure out um, you know, how it worked. And it turns out that uric acid is produced during fructose metabolism, and that was the clue. And then we started studying fructose and 20 years later, here I am on your show to talk about uh, how fructose and sugar can cause um, obesity and diabetes and the role of uric acid in that process. And I love, there's so much information in what you just shared. And so we'll talk about blood pressure and salt. I really wanted to get first into the fructose uh, mechanism and uric acid. Um, What are the differences of the sugars that our body, I guess, metabolizes and how do they where and how are they metabolized differently? Okay, so just as a basic, you know, so when we talk about sugar or table sugar, it's actually the substance is sucrose. And sucrose is a disaccharide that consists of a glucose molecule and a fructose molecule bound together. And then when you ingest sugar or sucrose, they get the two get broken apart and then you absorb them separately in the gut. So you get glucose and fructose together when you eat table sugar. And high fructose corn syrup is also consists of glucose and fructose that are mixed together in a a combination that can vary in terms of concentration. Typically, it's like 55% fructose and 45% glucose. And these are the two major added sugars that are added to the diet, and they can make up 15 percent of the overall caloric intake in the average person's diet. So, you know, sugar is a very big component. Of the two sugars, glucose and fructose look very similar in terms of structure and and, uh, chemistry, but they are very different in in the way they are metabolized. And so glucose is like the major fuel in our blood that we use to drive all the biologic processes we do in terms of, you know, the major carbohydrate fuel. And fructose is, is not present very much in, in the body. It's, there's only small concentrations in the body, maybe one one hundredth or so of what glucose is. But the fructose, um, when you eat fructose, it's metabolized mainly in the liver and the intestine, but, uh, but it can also be uh, metabolized in other sites, like, uh, like, for example, in the fat, in the kidney, in the brain, uh, and even in the islets and the pancreas where insulin is made. So, so fructose is, is kind of primarily metabolized in the liver uh, and, and these other sites, but uh, glucose is like the main carbohydrate fuel used throughout the body. In your new book, uh, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, talk about how glucose can turn to fructose. Can you talk a little bit about that, why they differ, and then how they affect the energy in the cells? Yeah. So initially, when we were doing our research, we found that fructose was really the the key uh, sugar that was driving the obesity and metabolic syndrome. If we fed animals fructose, they got very, very fat, insulin resistance, fatty liver, high blood pressure. And the fructose was was what was making the uric acid. So uh, glucose doesn't make uric acid. 
And so the whole story kind of fit for the problem being fructose. But we also found that we, when we gave glucose to animals, they also became fat and they developed all these same features. And the question was, why is it? And the classic theory was that glucose stimulates insulin and insulin is driving fat. And it, was a, it didn't require fructose to be present. But when we would lower uric acid in animals feeding sugar, we could have an effect. So it suggested to us that there was something going on with the glucose as well. So uh, we realized that there is a, a pathway by which glucose can be converted to fructose in the body. And uh, there's only one way in, in mammals, one way in humans that this occurs. There's only one way. And it's through a, a pathway called the polyol pathway. And basically, glucose gets converted to sorbitol, and then sorbitol gets converted to fructose. And uh, by the way, sorbitol sometimes uses an artificial sweetener. So. Okay, that's what I was thinking. So, so anyway, so, so, uh, so glucose can be converted to fructose in the body, and it uh, mainly was thought to occur mainly in diabetes, because in diabetes, you have high blood sugars or high blood glucose. And that seems to be a stimulus for activating this, this pathway to drive glucose to fructose. We realize that when you eat glucose, you know, the glucose levels will be initially high in the blood and in the liver because you eat the, it's like a high glycemic food. So when you eat the glucose, some of it spills over into the blood and the glucose levels, which are normally like around 90, can get up to 120, 140, 150 um, even in a normal person, if you're eating a lot of glucose, and that is known to be a stimulus for converting, uh, for activating this polyol pathway. So what we did is we took these animals that were receiving high glucose diet, and we looked in their livers and found that they had turned on this enzyme to create, to generate fructose. And that maybe, you know, maybe 20% of the glucose was being converted to fructose in the wow. body. And so it was really quite significant. It was mainly in the liver because that's where when you eat, the glucose gets absorbed through the intestine and into the portal vein. So the first organ it hits is the liver. Mm -hmm. and the liver gets the brunt of what you absorb, goes to the liver first. And so the liver got this wave of glucose that activated this pathway. The liver started making fructose and, and also some fructose even got into the circulation, but the glucose that the high glucose, when it would get to another organ, it also could stimulate fructose in other organs like the brain and, and the kidney. So the high glucose food was actually generating fructose. So then we had these animals that could not metabolize fructose, but they could metabolize glucose. They could get a good insulin response to glucose. So they, were, they could handle glucose fine, but it couldn't metabolize fructose. And when, when we gave them the high glucose food, they ate the same amount of glucose, but they were really protected from developing obesity and metabolic syndrome. They didn't get, uh, they, they got a little fat, but really they didn't get very fat and they did not get insulin resistant. They didn't get fatty liver. Uh, and it turns out that they were very much protected. And that told us that glucose could be converted to fructose in the body and also that that might be the mechanism by which high glycemic carbs cause mm -hmm. obesity and metabolic syndrome. And later on, we, we did more studies and we gave like a, a high fructose corn syrup to animals that could not metabolize fructose. And they were completely protected 
So when you drink a soft drink, what's driving the obesity response, what's driving insulin resistance seems to be the fructose that's in the drink and the fructose that you're going to make in your body. And, and recently there's a specialist in, um, in Switzerland who uh, used radio labeled fructose and, and glucose to kind of figure out what was happening in people. And he's found that there is a lot when you give a soft drink to a person that you, you triple the amount of fructose you make, wow. not, just, but not just the fructose that, uh, that you drink. Yeah. So that this was kind of a big discovery because we, it suggested that, um, that fructose was more important than just uh, what you eat in sugar and that it could come from other, other foods. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Okay, thank you. This will make sense with this transitional question, but so you mentioned uric acid. What does that have to do with meat? Um, can you explain a little bit about how meat, what it is with nitrogen and then ammonia getting into the urea or the uric acid cycle and what that has to do with purines? Like what are all these buzzwords and we'll connect them all together, but if yes. you can explain. Yeah, so let's just begin first with you know uric acid. So most people think of uric acid as a substance that we have, that we produce, all people produce uric acid. And then we try to get rid of it, uh, like typically in, in the urine, or sometimes maybe one third of it gets excreted in the stool. Mm -hmm. So we make this substance and then we try to get rid of it. But we always have some of it in our blood. The uric acid is coming from purines and purines are nitrogen containing substances that kind of are using as building blocks for DNA and RNA and energy. So the energy in our body comes from a substance called, called ATP. And it's really important. It's what drives us. You know, we make energy and then we use that energy to drive biologic process, whether it's breathing, drinking, walking, talking, thinking, uh, we're using ATP. And when ATP breaks down, it generates purines that get broken down further to uric acid. And likewise, when DNA, which is in the nucleus of our cells, and RNA, which drives protein production, these substances also contain purines. So purines, you know, we think of protein, fat, carbohydrates, but there's also, you know, what's in our nuclei, what's uh, this DNA and RNA, and they're made up of purines and uh, purine-like substances. And when they get broken down, you make uric acid. Now, how do we make uric acid? Well, we, get, we can make uric acid from sugar. And it turns out that when fructose is metabolized, there is a breakdown of ATP. So the ATP starts to decrease and get broken down and it generates uric acid. So that's how, how sugar does it. It does it from, or fructose, it does it from there. But other foods can also produce uric acid. Alcohol, for example, it's a big side effect of alcohol is it generates uric acid. 
again, by breaking down ATP and other, especially ATP. So it's very similar to fructose. And then you can get uh, make uric acid from uh, foods that are purine rich. So that would be foods that have a lot of RNA and DNA. So things that have a lot of small nuclei in it, like sardines and caviar and, and uh, things like that, uh, they, they can have a lot of RNA and DNA. They have a lot of little, the cells are small. Yeast, yeast has a lot of cells and nuclei. And so like brewer's yeast can have huge amounts of RNA in it, DNA. And so when you make beer and, there, and it has brewer's yeast in it, the alcohol is making uric acid, but the brewer's yeast is too. Uh, some meat, yeah. And so some meats also, you know, have a lot of nuclei. And so some meats, not all meats, but some meats also can generate uric acid when they're metabolized. And so it can, it can be produced by a variety of foods. And some plants have a lot of cells, cellular RNA and so forth, and they can also make uric acid. Uric acid can be produced from what you're saying is from alcohol, as well as purines from the breakdown of DNA, RNA. Lots of meats can possibly have it, certain fish. Um, and even internally, we produce endogenously uric acid. And then also alcohol. The worry of the three, if we were to isolate them, is there is fructose the main culprit? Yes. Well, so let's uh, just take one step further and kind of just say, well, let's look at Okay, so you can make uric acid from food. You can produce uric acid like from overexertion and so forth when muscles, your muscle breaks down a little bit. And so you release DNA and so forth. So you can, you can make uric acid, you know, with severe exercise, for example, not, and, and modest exercise actually lowers uric acid. But we, mm -hmm. the question is, well, what, what does the uric acid do? And what is the worst thing driving it? Most people think of uric acid as the cause of gout. So gout is this disease where with the uric acid levels get up high in the blood, the uric acid can crystallize because it's poorly soluble. And when it crystallizes, it typically crystallizes in joints and it causes an arthritis, a pain in the joints, red hot inflamed joints, a disease called gout. And then it loves the, the big toe uh, because we're walking on it and there's oftentimes the toe has a little bit of uh, damage from years of walking on it so that the crystals can deposit there a little bit easier than other sites. Gout becomes the classic disease that people think of when, they, when they're getting their uric acid check. People with gout uh, often have to go on medication to lower the uric acid, or they go on diets to lower purines or alcohol or sugar. And when they, when they do that, turns out that uh, sugar is a major driver in today's society for driving up uric acid. It's probably the major one because if you look at the change in diet since 1900, you can see that serum uric acid levels have been increasing progressively in the population in parallel with the rise in sugar intake. And so the two go directly in parallel. Uh, whereas red meats uh, can also raise uric acid, that correlation doesn't exist for the last in the last hundred years. It's primarily been the sugar that seems to be driving up the uric acid. So carbs from sugar, including sugar, appear to be um, driving it. And now we know that you can produce uric acid from high glycemic carbs as well. And, and so that's another mechanism. 
And that tends to drive the uric acid up more in the liver than it does in the periphery, but, but still it can do it. I spoke with Dr. Perlmutter and he mentioned to me that he's not as worried about the fructose in fruits as much and not about fruit juice, just the fruits. My community eats a very high meat-based diet. So a lot of meat and they eat the sardines, salmon oil. I love recommending that just because they're so nutrient dense, rich in omega-3s, but you're right. They're high in purines. And then for other people that eat liver and they're really, really high in purines, our community in general consumes a lot of purines, which will then increase our uric acid level. So maybe our definition of fruit is not as benign based on everything you've just talked about. And so fruit may have an effect on the levels of fructose. So do you think there is a cap of maybe the amount of fruit you can eat in a day that you would consider safe? Yeah. So so, um, natural fruits are much safer than fruit juice or dried fruits. When you eat a natural fruit, it only contains typically four to eight grams of fructose. Whereas like if you drink a soft drink, you might get 20 or 25, 30 grams of fructose. There's a huge difference in the amount of fructose in a natural fruit compared to a sugary dessert or something. Now, in the, the natural fruit also contains fiber, potassium, flavanols, contains substances that actually can uh, mollify or, or neutralize the effects of fructose. When fruit ripens, the sugar content goes up and the the good things like vitamin C and some of these other substances tend to go down. When fruit ripens, the tree actually wants the birds, for example, to eat the fruit uh, when it's ripe because the birds want to eat it to put on fat in the fall to help them through the winter. So as the fruit ripens towards the fall, the sugar content goes up and the good things that that block fructose go down. Like, and this helps, encourages the birds to eat the fruit then because if the fruit is really tart, it tends to be high in vitamin C and other things that neutralize the fructose. But humans, we actually like tart fruit. So we tend to like the fruit before it gets really ripe and mushy. And so we tend to eat fruit that has high vitamin C content and other things that tend to neutralize the effects of the sugar. The small amounts of sugar, the fact that it has fiber, all these good things actually turns out to really block a lot of the, of the fat-promoting effects of, of fruit. And we actually did a controlled trial in uh, overweight people in which we gave a low-sugar diet, but you could have fruit supplements versus a low-fructose diet where every, all the fructose was uh, reduced. And we had the equivalent effects on, on improving metabolic syndrome in the two groups. Natural fruits are, are relatively safe. What about the fruits that are very sweet, like mangoes, um, honeydew, where the fructose content will be higher? Is there a certain point where maybe that's for your end of, and everyone will be different, obviously, but at a certain point, too much fruit can be not as ideal? It's true. And I've had uh, patients uh, contact me who were having trouble losing weight and they were eating natural fruits, but eating huge amounts mm-hmm. and or very sweet fruits. And mango is one of the sweetest ones. Pears, apples, uh, you know, these tend to be uh, grapes. They tend to be high in sugar. A bowl of grapes, you can eat a lot of, of sugar in, in just a few minutes and overdo it. I totally agree with you. I think that 
you know, it's very easy to eat too many fruit. And, it, you know, I would probably eat like one, one fruit at a meal and, and separate it out so that it, you're not eating a huge amount of fructose all at one time. And the other problem is, is like fruit juice. When you take the fruit and you put it in a juicer and you remove a lot of the fiber and a lot of that, and in the process, you make this drink that has multiple fruit in it. And now you can get 20 grams of fructose and you drink it fast. And boy, that, that combination can really activate this process that causes the fat gain. And I also think it's because we eat fruits that are bred to be sweeter and bigger. So we are not eating the fruits that our ancestors ate long ago. So we may be getting bigger amounts and, and fruit is available 24 seven in every single variety you want now. And so long ago, that would have been great for us, but not as much now. What are your thoughts about honey? You know, lots of people think it's natural. Some people argue that it's animal-based because the bees are spitting up their stuff. But what are your thoughts about honey being a health food um, or is it too much fructose? Because the composition is that honey is more fructose than glucose. And then if you're saying that glucose can also convert some of the amount of glucose to fructose, is it a safe food? Well, I will say that honey is one of those foods that's been quite controversial. <laughs> There's a lot of literature that where people have pointed out that honey has a lot of other substances in it that can counter some of the effects of the fructose. I have not actually studied honey, so I can't really tell you an opinion other than there's this, there's this mixed literature. My personal concern is that honey uh, has a lot of fructose and that it would be very easy to overdo it with honey. I've done uh, some work like in Kuwait and in some of the Mideastern countries uh, honey and honey desserts are very, very popular. Uh, and I am concerned that that could be playing a, a role in the obesity that's uh, rampant over there. My in inherent feeling is that um, honey probably uh, is something we have to be careful with. It probably is fine to have a little bit here and there, but, but I would be concerned if you were eating honey at every meal. And I, I do think it is a lot of fructose. And although it may contain some good substances, it probably is easy to to overdo it. So the argument I hear from that is, well, if someone is physically fit, so they look physically well and they exercise a lot and they just um, are eating meats and then adding lots of honey, maybe having some organ meats, but they look well, then let them be and let them have their metabolic health. But the interesting thing is you've done a study where you fed rats a high sugar diet. And while none of them seem to really gain a lot of weight, you said there were internal changes. Can you talk about that study and why we can't just judge the outside to think it's pure health? Yeah, absolutely. And I even have a, a story about a patient. Who, okay. Uh, we were very interested in, in how fructose caused obesity and how fructose causes insulin resistance. And one of the first questions we asked ourselves was, um, is, is it because uh, they're eating too many calories? Uh, or is it because, you know, maybe when you eat sugar, it's so sweet, you, it encourages more food intake. And so maybe the, if you're eating a high sugar diet, you'll end up eating a lot more calories. So what we did is we decided to, to feed animals a sugar in which we controlled exactly how much uh, calories they got. One group got exactly the same amount as the other group. And one group got more of a sugar diet and the other one got more of a starch diet. Now they both, we know, we now know that some starch can be turned into, into fructose, 
But um, this was uh, not liquid glucose. This was more like a, a solid starch. And when we fed them the exact same number of calories, we could see if there was a difference between uh, sugar and starch. One of the problems was, was we didn't realize that one of our laboratory rats was actually sick and wasn't eating very much. And it, and, but the way we do this, it's called pair feeding. All the animals have to eat the same amount. So if there's one guy that's eating very little, all the guys get fed only that small amount. So, <laughs> so for, for four months, these animals were eating way below their normal intake. They were on a severe diet. And so they, all the rats ate the same exact amount. But what we found at the end of the study was that the sugar-fed rats actually had all developed diabetes. So even though they were on a diet, they all developed diabetes. They had fatty liver. They had all these features of metabolic syndrome. Their weights were about the same because they were weight gain turns out to be driven a lot by total calorie intake. They looked the same outside, but inside the sugar fed animals had severe metabolic changes. Now the starch fed ones probably had a little bit, but it was quite a bit less than the, than the sugar ones. I had a bodybuilder that I was working with. She was like a entering contests and mm -hmm. looked like it was all muscle, but she ate a lot of sugar. Uh, she ended up getting ill and had to get hospitalized uh, with fatty liver and high blood pressure and insulin resistance that was related to the sugar intake that she had. So even though she looked great on the outside, she had these, uh, these things going on on the inside. Now, a lot of people who are super athletic, these super athletes, a lot of them they say they can eat anything they want and get away with it. You know, some of the people that are really champion athletes, they can eat sugar and they can eat anything they want and it doesn't seem to affect them. What's happened is the way, the way that sugar works is it damages the mitochondria, which is what makes the energy. And so the mitochondria are your main things in your body that are making the ATP. And when the, they're making this ATP, they produce it. You can turn it down if you want by creating oxidative stress. If you create oxidative stress in the mitochondria, and that's what uric acid does, mm -hmm. it kind of dampens the amount of energy that's made. And in turn, the calories that are coming in, instead of going to make ATP, which is the immediate energy you need, it gets uh, shunted to make stored energy, which is fat. So, you know, when you eat calories, they, it's really like eating energy. And it can either be used to make immediate energy like ATP, or it can be stored as energy where it's being stored as fat. Uh, the way that fructose works is that it generates this uric acid, and the uric acid kind of stuns the mitochondria with a little bit of oxidative stress. And that shifts the energy from being made from ATP to, to being stored ATP or fat. So this is how the uric acid works. So these super athletes, they have fantastic mitochondria. Their system is so strong they, that it's very hard to knock it down. If you eat a soft drink, you can have this uh, oxidative stress, but the mitochondria are so strong that you can't notice it. But the worry is that if you do this again and again and again, that it's going to, over time, cause damage. And, you know, some people might have just so, so strong and good mitochondria from exercise and doing everything right that they're relatively immune. And everybody begins with really healthy mitochondria. If you're 20 years old or 18 years old, many people will say, I can drink a soft drink. It's no problem. I, I can eat anything I want. I can't gain weight. I was sort of that way when I was 20. I didn't have to worry about eating cakes or this or that. 
but but as we get older, our mitochondria slowly get a little bit less resilient, and they they become a little bit easier to damage them. The super athletes they they've been able to maintain those healthy mitochondria, you know, as they get older. So they they tend to be more resistant, but almost anything can be brought down if you keep attacking it. And so my my thought is that uh, even the best athletes, if they were if they're eating the wrong foods over time, it may may start showing up somehow somewhere. Right, and that's why you see some ultra out athletes eventually get diabetes as much as they're really healthy uh, from the outside perspective. And then there's even the thought of why are Asians in general not as obese, but they have metabolic syndrome because they're, you know, maybe it's their fat threshold, but they get diabetes very early. My mom is not much larger than me, but at that point she had diabetes for 10 years and we had no idea. I remember one point you mentioned in a different interview was that fructose was the only, maybe it was the only sugar that actually lowers the energy of the cell compared to other sugars. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's quite frightening. (laughs) Yes. So it turns out that almost all nutrients are used to make energy. We just talked about you make ATP. And so, um, and, but the process of making energy actually comes with a cost. It actually, you have to use a little ATP Right. to actually make energy. So to, to make energy, you have to actually spend a little energy. And the way the systems are work, there's, there's a lot of defense systems in place so that when you're eating things like glucose, when the glucose is being metabolized, there is some energy being spent, but the body tends to be able to maintain the energy levels always in a normal range. And part of it is because of the speed with which it happens. And part of it is because of regulatory systems. But like if you eat glucose or if you eat protein or fat, um, it tends not to drop the energy in the cell. But when you eat fructose, it's very different. And what, what fructose does is it gets metabolized so fast uh, that there's an a, acute rapid consumption of ATP. It's not regulated. So if you get... You get a big dose of fructose, you get a big drop in ATP. If you get a small dose of fructose, you get a smaller drop in ATP. So it's sort of a uh, related to the amount and the concentration of fructose that gets to the liver. So if you get if you drink a soft drink that has a lot of fructose and you drink it fast and you drink it on an empty stomach, it's like a wave of fructose that gets to the liver, and that triggers a big fall in ATP. Now, when the ATP falls, there's also a fall in intracellular phosphate that accompanies it. Use the ATP, the phosphate comes off and you make ADP, and then another phosphate comes off and you make AMP, and the ADP and AMP get reconstituted to ATP. But when the intracellular phosphate falls, the the sweeper system comes in that removes the AMP, and so you can't reconstitute the ATP very well. That sweeper system is this purine degradation system. So it breaks down the AMP to IMP and all these things and eventually generates the uric acid. And then the uric acid comes back and goes into the mitochondria and causes oxidative stress that keeps the ATP production down. The effects of that is to shift ATP production to um, another system that doesn't require oxygen. That's called glycolysis. And it also stimulates fat production, insulin resistance, and a whole series of events 
that are associated with that animals would like to have to help them survive. So the way it sort of works is that animals, they survival is key out in the wild. And, and to survive, you need to have enough uh, uh, energy. If food is providing you energy, but if there's no food, then you have to live off your stored energy. Right. And the stored energy is the fat. So every, all the animals want to have some fat, which is the reserve for when things are bad. So animals all carry a little bit of fat. The problem is uh, if you carry too much fat, then you can't run and successfully evade predators. So you don't want to be too fat, but you want to be fat enough that if you if there's no food or a big storm comes and you can't eat for two weeks, that you can survive. Now, some animals know that there's going to be a long period of time without food, like a winter or like a bird that wants to migrate 5,000 kilometers or something without stop. They have to have enough food. So they have to store extra fat. The way they do this is they eat things that can either make or that contain fructose. What the, that does is then the fructose drops the energy in the cell and it keeps the energy at a lower level. And that's like an alarm signal. The animal says, oh my God, I don't have enough energy, even though it does, it has stored fat, but, but it's tricking the, the system into thinking there's not enough energy. And that activates all kinds of processes. It's foraging, hunger, foraging for food. You become insulin resistant as a protective mechanism. Insulin resistance, these animals that like hibernate become insulin resistant because what happens is they, they reduce the glucose uptake in, the, in their muscle so that it's preferentially available for the brain because the muscle uses insulin to take it up. And so when it becomes insulin resistant, it can't take up the glucose into the muscle as well. So the glucose goes up in the blood, but the brain, much of the brain doesn't require insulin. So as, as the glucose goes up in the blood, it becomes a fuel for the brain. And so it's what it is, it's a way of when there's not enough food around uh, that you maintain enough glucose for the brain to function. And, and of course, that's what you want to do when you're starving. Uh, you want to be able to think clearly so that you can find the food and so forth that you need to and evade predators at the same time. Fructose, by dropping the energy in the cell, activates an alarm system that makes an animal want to eat more, get hungry. They reset their weight to a higher weight. They try to store fat and they, they raise their blood pressure. And it's all to be a good thing. It's a good thing for these animals because it helps them prepare for there's a food shortage and they might be at risk for starvation. It was meant to be a good thing. The trouble is, is uh, we developed a taste for sweets and so that we could pick out foods that would help us. And now, as you say, we've got food 24 hours, seven days a week. We just can go down to the grocery store and we can fill up our all the foods and we can eat the sugars and the foods that become fructose. And so we've, we've got this system where we're constantly creating an alarm signal in our body saying that we're hungry and we need more fat. We need, but, but it's, we're, we're not actually doing that. We're just activating this alarm signal. And so what's happening is we're becoming obese. What's interesting is the fructose drives this signal. So it activates this process but it doesn't actually necessarily make you fat. It just makes you hungry and insulin resistant. To really gain fat, you have to create this, this insulin resistance and leptin resistance and so that you're hungry. And then you have to provide the food, particularly like high fat foods. 
uh, have a lot of calories, nine calories per gram. They're energy dense, so you can get a lot of calories very quickly. So if you eat fat with fructose, if you eat sugar to make you act as alarm signal, and then eat a lot of fat, you can really gain weight. So if you give animals fructose, they become fat. If you give them a high fat diet with the fructose, they become real fat. If you give them high fat diets without fructose, they don't really get fat. Um, and so when you eat fructose, you, you, you dysregulate that so you can gain weight and then you eat the high fat food. But in general, the, the meat diet would be very good because so you're, you're not eating a lot of carbs and, and so you're not activating the switch. And the endogenous pathway where you make fructose in your body, you make it from glucose. So a low carb diet also kind of protects you. Uh, a meat diet that doesn't have, that has very minimal carbs, that would be a good way of, of blocking, making fructose as well. So it would work fairly well, I think. So, but you're right. If you, if you ate a pure meat diet, but you allowed yourself to eat a lot of fruit, you have, you'd have to be careful that you don't eat so much fruit that you're activating the switch, um, this biologic switch to, because at that point, then uh, other mechanisms could kick in. One of the uh, questions that you've brought up is, is what about the uric acid from meats? So uric acid is particularly generated from, from organ meats like liver and so forth. So, you know, I know that currently you're not a big fan of, of eating a lot of liver. And I agree with you because not only does it contain vitamin A and copper, but it can generate a lot of uric acid. And it also can, it's one of the main organs that concentrates toxins. So any toxin that the animal might've eaten, it's a good chance that some of it could be in the liver. So I, I think that liver and organ meats are particularly dangerous for precipitating attacks of gout. And they probably are, are bad at, at activating this biologic switch and because they're generating uric acid as well. Um, I think that you're right about that. So, so many thoughts about liver, um, you know, obviously from a nutrient density perspective, there's so much good stuff, but when I look at the vitamin A concentration, it is a lot. And it's, since it's a fat soluble vitamin, it gets stored in your liver. If your liver is not well, because let's say you had fatty, fatty liver from non-alcohol reasons, um, or you're eating too much fructose, all of these are stressors on the liver. And at a certain point, it just may be too much. And then if you think about the purine content, which I didn't realize in the beginning when I was um, looking at the vitamin A, the copper, and all of these other nutrients, but then the purine content in liver and organ meats is very high. So all of these combined is concerning. And there are people that will say the uh, liver is a filtration system or, you know, it clears out toxins, but it doesn't actually store toxins. The thing about that, when you process an animal, you don't know at what part of the liver filtration system it was at or the, you know, the toxin cleaning system. So at a certain point at any given time, there will be toxins in a liver because you just don't, you can't time. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that argument is a very moot point to me, in my opinion, but I've just seen too many clients where they eat liver because it's a superfood and they're eating multiple ounces in a day. Sometimes it's even one ounce in a day. And depending on your liver health and then depending on your uric acid and your insulin uh, resistance and metabolic syndrome, it becomes an adverse food for many people. And I really, really appreciate you talking about how purines 
in uh, meats. And then the addition of fructose is just not ideal. Yeah. Do you know the story of Captain Andre and, and the vitamin A? So Captain Andre was this uh, Swedish balloonist around in the 1890s who tried okay. to go across. He wanted to take his balloon across the North Pole. And uh, they ended up after several days, they, they ended up crashing their balloon into a, on, onto an island where they lived for a few weeks. They actually have photos of them shooting a polar bear and stuff like this. And okay. they ate the liver of the polar bear. And they all died from vitamin A to- intoxication that was discovered years later when they were found. Vitamin A, uh, some livers can be so, contain so much vitamin A, particularly like polar bear liver. It, even a few bites can cause vitamin A intoxication, right. which can kill you. So, uh, but liver too, like I'm an infectious disease specialist too, of all things. And um, it turns out that certain foods can contain toxins like puffer fish, and these tetrodotoxins and ciguatoxin, where fish can concentrate it in their liver, like the barracuda, for example, will eat other fish, and then it will concentrate these toxins that these other fish have, have eaten, and it will really concentrate in the liver to a lesser extent in the meat too, but mainly the liver. And so I've seen people with ciguatera poisoning, this kind of strange fish. Wow. Um, and so they get these really weird neurologic symptoms, and it's from eating this uh, dinoflagellate little kind of like a plant that can, carries this toxin. And then it just goes up the food chain and it ends up in the liver of these, uh, like the barracuda. And then you, you eat that and then you get this toxin, you know, related to it. So livers can concentrate some toxins for sure. No, I agree with that. Um, but there is this, and vitamin A can be toxic. I mean, a form of vitamin A is aldehyde. So it's just, it's, it's just really interesting. There are people that will say the argument is, well, no one eats polar bear liver. It's because polar bears are carnivores. And so their vitamin A concentration is in excess, but for a human that maybe has used Accutane in the past with that it's very high in vitamin A and has had fatty liver in the past, it just may be an issue even to have some calf liver. And again, it's going to be dependent on the person. But if you're eating fructose and alcohol with it, I think any amount can be very dangerous because the uric acid cycle um, will facilitate metabolic syndrome and whether you look like it outwardly or not. And you're right that vitamin A is much higher like in the polar bear liver than in a regular liver. But you're you're also right that, that liver in general will raise uric acid. And we have pretty good evidence that uric acid is involved in, in driving this switch that leads to the metabolic syndrome and obesity. So I, I think it's wise to, to be very careful with how much liver you eat. Is there a way that we can, uh, I guess, measure our liver health? I mean, obviously, biopsies are the best way but ALT, AST are some of the markers that may come up, but sometimes that's because of fatty, fatty liver. But the biggest argument that people make is, well, I tested my uh, vitamin A in my blood and it's fine, but that's not the place we store vitamin and blood is a transport system. So is there any way that we can measure the liver? Is there any type of test? Probably. So the AST and the ALT are blood tests that just measure if there's inflammation in the liver. And unfortunately, they can be normal, and yet you can have bad liver problems. They're not very sensitive. If they're elevated, though, they can mean that you may have alcohol, too much alcohol, that you're drinking too much, or, or, or that you have fatty liver or something. But a more sensitive test is the ultrasound. And people okay. um, do the ultrasound. There's a particular one called the fiber scan. 
uh, which can actually look for the degree of fibrosis in the mm-hmm. liver. But a regular ultrasound can often tell if there's fatty liver. If a liver is enlarged, for example, or if it's starting to shrink, if it shrinks like a cirrhotic liver or it becomes irregular with nodules and stuff, that's not good either. So I, the ultrasound is, is pretty good. Obviously, uh, CT scans and stuff like that, they're pretty expensive. But the ultrasound is, and the fiber scan are, are used like in fatty liver clinics um, as a way... To assess because um, it is sometimes it's hard by palpation. Sometimes you can tell if the liver is enlarged by palpation, but I the the ultrasound's the gold standard. Okay, thank you. You mentioned in your book that you're not really a fan of drinking fructose. You talked a little bit about it can be absorption and then concentration. Can you talk a little bit about that? I feed my kids a meat-based diet, so the very high-fat um, meat-focused diet, very limited carbs. If they want fruit, it's at the very end. And like you said, with fiber, um, not the super sweet tropical fruits. Can you talk yeah. about why this you're matters? Good. That sounds good, what you're doing. One of the questions that came up is, you know, that people often ask is, is there something special about soft drinks that are bad compared to like eating, eating sugar? When we were doing our studies, we had this discovery that the way fructose was activating this, this pathway wasn't from the calories of the fructose. It was from the energy, the, the fall in energy that occurs. So when the energy falls, if it falls a lot, then you trigger a big switch. You trigger a lot of insulin resistance and the, the process that leads to obesity and so forth. What drives the energy down is the concentration of fructose that gets there. So if a lot of fructose gets there quickly, it's going to cause more, a greater drop in energy than if it trickles in. So like, for example, so we started doing studies like um, if you take a soft drink and you drink it in five uh, minutes, or do you, if you drink it in an hour, is there a difference? And so it turns out like if you drink it all at once, you get this big drop in energy and you activate this biologic switch big time. If you could drink it very, very slowly over an hour, the activation of the switch is much less. We also did it not just by liquid doing it over a long time versus a short time, but we also looked at comparisons of liquid and solid. And actually there was a beautiful study done by others where they gave jelly beans that have sugar versus drinking the same amount of sugar. And again, they found that drinking is much worse in terms of its effects to induce metabolic syndrome. It isn't just the amount of sugar, it's how you take it. If you take a soft drink, on an empty stomach, you're going to get a big wave of sugar to the liver, and that's going to do much more than if you ate, ate it as solid sugar in, with a big meal that was going to slow the absorption of the sugar. Having said that, although we drinking a lot of sugar is really bad, eating a lot of sugar isn't great either. So it's just, uh, I don't want to encourage you to eat a cake and say, oh, Dr. Johnson said that, you know, it's not as bad as drinking soft drinks. Yes, but it's still bad. You really want to cut back on your sugar uh, as much as you can. I do believe that on special occasions, you're allowed to, to have, you know, a little piece of chocolate cake or something on your birthday, if that's what you want. But basically it is related to the concentration of fructose more so than, than just the amount. So if you ate a large amount in a short time, that's the worst combination. 
It sounds like mechanistically, it's really just how fast are you going to turn on that switch and that switch is not ideal. And then if you turn it on, then it will downregulate the cells, the energy. And that's where trickling may just be better because hopefully it doesn't turn the switch too much. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. Assuming that we have a little bit of fructose and other foods in our diet, what level of uric acid do you consider safe? And at what point or what level would you start maybe treating with possibly allopurinol and the, and then obviously the dietary recommendations? In, in terms of uh, the level that you start seeing an increase of risk in the general population, it's right around 5.5 milligrams per <laughs> deciliter. So somewhere between 5.2 and 5.5. In that range, if you start going above it, you start increasing your risk for obesity and diabetes and hypertension. And, and once it gets over seven, it's not linear. So it increases kind of slowly from 5.5 to seven. And then by the time it starts to get to eight, it starts to become exponential. It starts to go up really significantly. And by the time it gets to nine or 10, it's really at a high risk. One of the problems too is that the uric acid is causing oxidative stress to the mitochondria and it's stimulating inflammation pathways uh, based on our, our studies in animals and in, in cell culture and, and even some uh, studies in humans. It's stimulating inflammation and oxidative stress, but if the levels get really high, it can form crystals, uh, not just in the joints, but also in other sites like the blood vessels. And there are studies in people with gout saying that maybe 75, 80% of people with gout can be found to have some crystals in their blood vessels. So we, you don't really want to get to the very high levels where the crystals are beginning to form. When do you intervene? Uh, I think that it's wise to try to reduce foods that, that can raise uric acid or to be careful if, if your uric acid levels are high, you have to kind of go through your diet and try to figure out if there's particular foods. As we mentioned, things like anchovies and sardines are particularly good at driving uric acid levels up and yeast extracts and mm -hmm. things like that. Meats have modest amounts of purine. So you have to kind of look, you would try to do some kind of dietary effect first and alcohol can drive uric acid up. So reducing alcohol uh, might be a good move if you have a high uric acid. And if these dietary measures don't work, there are some supplements that can lower uric acid, things like quercetin and things mm -hmm. like this. Uh, but eventually, if your uric acid gets really high, we should consider the possibility of lowering it with a drug like allopurinol. Currently, the FDA recommends treat the treatment of patients with gout uh, but if you have a high uric acid in the absence of gout, there's still controversy whether or not lowering uric acid should be recommended. And one of the reasons is that allopurinol can sometimes cause significant allergic reactions, okay. particularly in uh, the Han Chinese. And so uh, you, we have to be a little bit careful about recommending drugs to lower uric acid. It really should be discussed with your physician and the pros and cons. But it, it is true that if your uric acid gets really high, like eight or higher, the risk for crystallization and, and other things is real. That's not a good thing. So now the, the other thing is that some people, like when they go on a low-carb diet or a, a carb-free diet, they, they can get a rise in uric acid uh, during the time of the low-carb diet. And sometimes it can be quite significant. The question is, what do you do about that? 
we still don't fully know what the uric acid is doing in the low-carb diet. According to uh, my experimental research, it might be acting to try to stimulate glucose levels to go up. In the, it, it can stimulate a thing called gluconeogenesis. So you always want to have some glucose in your blood, you know, because you need it. So when you eat a meat diet, you, you can use amino acids to generate glucose as well as lactate. And there's other substances. You don't have to make glucose from carbs. You can make it from amino acids. Right. And that process may be uh, driven a little bit by uric acid. So it may help raise blood glucose a little bit. It may be a, a compensatory mechanism when you drop the carbs in the diet to help maintain your blood glucose while you start getting adapted to being able to use the ketones as a fuel. It may be a protective mechanism. So I'm not 100% certain whether or not lowering uric acid in patients on a low-carb diet is good or bad because it might be there to help protect you to adapt to the low-carb diet. So we, I don't really know what to do. The good news is when a patient is on a low-carb diet or no-carb diet, that high uric acid often goes down after several weeks and goes back down on its own. But if it continues to be high, like in the eight or nine range, uh, you might try to look for foods that might be causing that uric acid to be so high and, and try to reduce those as your first step. My keto, so I checked this morning because I wanted to talk to you about this. So I noticed I got a uric acid reader and wanted to see where my uric acid was. And uh, one time I checked and it was eight. Um, but let me tell you my other markers. So my CRP, my inflammation marker, and I know that's not the um, only end all inflama inflammatory marker, but it was, it's less, it's like 0 0.2. And my glucose this morning was 89. And my ketones were 1.0. I've heard that sometimes beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone, competes with uric acid to be removed, and that um, competition will then increase our uric acid levels. You said it might be protective. We don't know for sure, but I've never struggled with gout. There's no one in my family that struggles with gout, but I do have hyperuricemia. So today, my uh, uric acid levels was 6.1. Yeah. So 6.1, I wouldn't worry about the okay. eight. If, if you continue to have eight for a long time, it makes me wonder, you know, what is the uric acid doing? Remember that uric acid dries up blood pressure, dries an inflammatory process. It, it tries to help you store fat. It tries to raise glucose. But in your diet, if you're basically on a ketotic diet, yeah. you, you actually, the uric acid may be helping to keep your blood pressure normal as opposed to low. It might be helping to keep your glucose levels at that 89. And if you lower it, you might actually be a little bit more prone to hypoglycemia. I mean, and one could argue that it could be a compensatory mechanism. And it is true that the beta-hydroxybutyrate or these ketones do compete with the uric acid so that the uric acid rises as the ketones go up. The uric acid also goes up in response to the ketones. And the uric acid will actually increase the ketones in the blood as well because they compete. Possible that they could be uh, it could be working to help keep the ketones up higher as a fuel source as well. I, I'm not as concerned uh, elevations in uric acid on people who are on a ketotic diet because there are very few reports of gout. Most okay. of the people uh, have, have a ketotic diet. Many of them have no signs of inflammation. Uh, they have normal glucose levels. It, it's a good thing, uh, probably. All right, guys, that was part one. I hope you realize there are a lot more nuances than just 
fruit is natural, fruit is healthy, and especially even honey. There are so many things that we need to consider on a meat-based diet. This meat-based diet is relatively new in the sense of it being examined, researched, studied. And so we don't know what these other components that are being added to a meat-only diet will do to the actual diet's benefits. It's something to consider. Make sure to stay tuned for part two, where we talk a lot more about this and blood pressure and salt and uh, lots of other things. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.